Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today, Jessica Fonzo joins us to talk about her new book, Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet? from Johns Hopkins University Press. Jessica, if you would, uh, start us off by telling us a bit about yourself and how it is you came to write this book. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Um, I am a professor at Johns Hopkins University. I'm a professor of global food policy and ethics, and I have training in nutrition. That's how I started off, but have uh, really become much more broad looking at the links between the kind of foods we grow, our diets, and its impacts on climate change. And that is really what my book, Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet, is all about. It's how is our food systems uh, faring? How are they producing the kind of foods that we want to eat, that we should be eating? What are its impacts on human health and impacts on the planet? Terrific. So you you lay out sort of three broad uh, problems we need to think about in the book, chronic and costly diseases, climate change, and then problems of economic so- and social inequality, and then proceed to, to help us think about how all of these things might be connected to each other. Uh, why don't we start with sort of, of basic questions of what is, what is the state of health across the world and what does food and nutrition have to do with it? Yeah, so the, the state of, of health is sort of a mixed picture. Um, COVID has not really helped in <laughs> making yeah. that picture more beautiful in the sense. Um, we still have a significant number of hungry people in the world. And that number has been rising now for the last four years. And with COVID and uh, the shock to the health system, it had impacts on every other system, including food systems. And so we're seeing more people struggle to get enough food and get access to food. So the numbers last year were about 690 million people were hungry. And this year it went up to 811 million people, which is incredible. And at the same time, you know, we still have significant burdens of undernutrition overall, children who are chronically undernourished in some parts of the world, and a huge number of children and adults and teenagers who are overweight and obese. 
which presents a significant risk factor for non-communicable diseases, although we're in the middle of a communicable pan disease pandemic, but these non-communicable diseases, things like heart disease, diabetes, stroke, we're seeing every country impacted by obesity and these non-communicable diseases. So it's not a great picture, and we often call it the double burden of malnutrition. The world is struggling with both undernutrition and overweight and obesity. And our diets play a huge role uh, in that uh, malnutrition burden, not eating the right kinds of foods uh, with adequate nutrients, eating a lot of unhealthy, highly processed foods, high in sugar, salt, and fat that are cheap and tasty um, are significantly detrimental. And now diets have become the number one risk factor of disease and death in the world, which is incredible. More than smoking, more than air pollution, more than wildfire smoke, it's the diets that are, are killing the world's population. And so, so just to back up for two seconds, so that, mm -hmm. that, um, that undernutrition and obesity, mm -hmm. uh, that often travels together within the same people in the same populations, correct? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's difficult to get your head around that, right? Cause yep. you think, well, someone's hungry, they're undernourished, they're underweight, they're starving, but there is hunger, um, that can be in the same household and the same person where someone is suffering from obesity, but they're also food insecure and hungry at the same time. And the kinds of foods they can get access to and afford tend to be these empty calorie junk food, right? And, and that's obviously not nourishing. Um, and uh, it's very difficult to get access to the healthy diet. We know that about 3 billion people on the planet cannot afford a healthy diet which is incredible. And there's a significant proportion of those people living in the United States, for example, along with every other region in the world. But so you can be obese and very food insecure. And we see that in the United States um, and for some households, particularly now with COVID and the economic impacts COVID has had on households. Um, so let's hold on this for just a minute or two. Uh, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about uh, uh, sort of sort of beyond the moral imperative. Um, why 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 should we care about such things? And I wonder if you might focus on consequences of childhood undernourishment. Maybe tell little people a little bit about stunting and wasting and how we should think about those and what those matter. Uh, and then maybe add in one last piece of this puzzle, which is uh, micronutrient deficiencies. And again sort of how that plays out and what the larger consequences are. Yeah, so, so stunting is being short for your age. So a child under the age of five is measured against world benchmarks. And a child is, is when they are short for their age, they're considered to be stunted. That has significant effects besides just being short. It's a proxy for other uh, measures of cognitive development, of poor immunity, and really uh, that child, if you do not intervene, the window shuts and it's very hard for that child to 
to grow into their full potential of what they could be. And a lot of that is not just um, it being stunted in their bodies, but being stunted from in their brains as well. Wasting is acute malnutrition. What you see when there's seasonal hungers or a micro famine where children just don't get enough food and they're wasting away. Um, micronutrient deficiencies is where you see uh, a person is deficient in certain vitamins and minerals, be it iron or zinc or calcium or vitamin D. And each of those nutrients have their own outcomes that impact health and immunity. We know that micronutrient deficiencies are prevalent around the world with iron deficiency being the most significant, which can lead to uh, you know, poor cognition, weakness, inability to focus. Uh, it's very debilitating to everyday life. All of these undernutrition indicators are measurements of a population's health. Children are an excellent marker for how a population is doing. And these undernutrition manifestations are incredibly costly for countries. Countries don't fully develop. They don't get on a path towards economic growth. Um, it's very costly for countries to have to treat undernutrition. It can cost governments 15 to 20 percent of their entire GDP dealing with undernutrition. So these kinds of manifestations of, of being undernourished, not having enough food, not having enough of the right type of food is costly for countries at the same time as overweight and obesity is incredibly costly for health systems and for countries as well. So let's now uh, uh, step out a bit and uh, talk a little bit about uh, food systems and start to make the connections here to climate change. So, uh, so let me ask this in, in two very broad ways. Uh, how does modern agriculture systems contribute to climate change? Uh, and then uh, the, the sort of the feedback loop, how does climate change then affect modern food systems, which of course helps us understand some of the, 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 the health and nutrition outcomes that we're just talking about. So talk a little bit about sort of the modern industrial global food system and what that connection is to, to ongoing climate crises. So yeah, so food systems are, are made up of, of how food is produced, how it's packaged, how it's processed, how it moves to retail environments. Those food systems and all the activities and actors that, that are moving food through that system to what we now consume um, is generating a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. It's having uh, significant water footprints, uh, nutrient runoff footprints, uh, deforestation issues. So in order to produce enough food to feed the world, it's having a significant environmental footprint. The global food system produces about 30% of total greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not just energy in the transportation sector that's generating all of the greenhouse gases that 
contribute to global warming, rising sea levels, and climate-related natural disasters. It's food systems and the way we are producing and raising food. Some of that comes from cattle. Cattle produce a lot of methane, a very toxic greenhouse gas. Um, But it's not just cattle. It's the entire system. It's the fertilizers that we use. It's how we manage manure. It's how we manage land. It's how we manage forests and, and that deforestation largely driven by agriculture and cattle um, is significantly contributing to greenhouse gases and environmental degradation. So it's really, and, and interestingly, food systems are largely ignored in the COP, the climate change negotiations that happen every year, which is ironic being that they are such significant uh, contributors to global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. At the same time, um, food systems are victims to climate change. They need those environments, right? They need, they need sound ecosystems. They need water. They need biodiversity. We need that biodiversity to grow lots of varieties of foods. So food systems themselves, too, are very much reliant on, on environments and a sound, stable climate. And what we're seeing and what we will continue to see is that climate change will have impacts on our ability to grow enough food, particularly in the global south. Climate change is affecting the quality of the crops with declines in the nutrient composition of crops. And we are seeing significant collapse of biodiversity Uh, which gives us the range and varieties of foods, water shortages, and contributing to these climate-related natural disasters that are wiping out crops, droughts, floods, extreme weather events that uh, will continue to churn as as the world warms. Am I depressing you? Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, no more than anything else that is going on in the United States or the world at the moment. (laughs) Um, It's, um, it's daunting, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's this, this, this huge, extraordinarily large problem. And, you know, part of one of, one of the many challenges associated with it is that, 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 there are good arguments to be made, yes, that it is that very sort of industrial nature of the global food system that allows us to feed as many people as we do, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, industri- the industrialization has been a blessing and a curse, right? This, right. If you look at the United States, these large-scale monocrop cultures, of uh, crop cult- uh, culturing system is been quite detrimental to uh, some uh, environmental indicators. We've become very reliant on inputs, fertilizers, and pesticides to grow that amount of food. But it has fed not only the United States, but a significant proportion of the world and the animals that we then consume. So this industrialized production has been incredible technologically in 
just producing calories, but it's been detrimental to the environment and detrimental to diets because we don't grow the varieties of and diversity of foods that should be on our plate. You know, we shouldn't be eating just corn and soy and may, you know, rice and right. potatoes. So. Um, so that's perfect. So let's use that as a segue to talk about what it is that we can do about this and to, to fix some of these problems. Uh, let's start at sort of the macro, the, the policy level. Uh, what can be done at the international level and what can be done at the national level, in your opinion, uh, to begin to address some of these problems? Well, I think we're already seeing it at the international level. There's a UN Food System Summit, September 23rd, that will be right at the time of the UN General Assembly. That will bring together all of the UN agencies, all of the member states of the United Nations to discuss what can we do to fix food systems. So this is a really important moment in the world to, to focus on food. Um, so that, that at the international level has been important. And the UN agencies involved in food issues like the World Health Organization, like the Food and Agriculture Organization, they should continue to play a role in ensuring that their member states are considering food as part of their sustainable development plans and strategies. So that's happening. What's more difficult is governments and governments uh, taking uh, action and putting attention on food systems. When you look at countries, when you think about who governs and runs food systems, it's usually not governments. It's the industry, it's business, it's private sector. They're in the driver's seat of how our food systems are, are being shaped and, and who's getting access to food and what kind of food that uh, is being produced. Governments need to govern their food systems. They need to govern private sector. They need to help citizens in uh, being able to make better choices that they can afford. So there's a lot of things governments can do. Some will be kind of these hard policies regulating bad behavior by private sector, like don't market junk food to young children. Um, ban trans fat and a very unhealthy fat in the food system, which has already been happening in the world. Um, put easy to read labels on packages uh, for consumers. Provide guidance on, on, on how to eat better as opposed to burying it in a you know, dietary guideline that no one reads. <laughs> um, so governments can do a lot in shepherding food systems in better directions for their citizens. And, and a lot of that is just around governing their food system, getting a handle on uh, um, who's doing what in their food system and ensuring that, um, they, that those that are working in food systems have both environment and public health goals in mind, not just profit. So I, to me, I think that there's very little happening in countries around uh, governing of food systems, and we really need governments to step up much more. What we're seeing a lot of action on is in cities. Mayors are taking 
um, a lot of action to improve city municipal food systems, ensuring that they're more sustainable, that um, you know, being better about reducing food loss and waste, using less plastic, um, getting more public messages out there about how their food choices are impacting the planet and impacting their health. So you're seeing a lot of really interesting innovation at the city level. So maybe that's something that at the national level, countries can aspire towards by looking at some of the cities in their own countries and what they're doing. You also talk about the the need for there to be more diversity in our farming systems and what you refer to as nutrition-sensitive agriculture. Can you talk a little bit about that? What we're growing now does not really match what's on our plate. And so how do we reorient agriculture policies and farms that are supported by those policies to be more nutritious? Most of the land that's used to grow food, about 75% of it is growing 10 to 12 crops in the world, which is incredible. And most of that is the starchy staple kind of crops some oil crops and sugar. And we don't see a lot of growth in fruits and vegetables and beans and nuts and seeds, some of the healthy components of a diet. So we, we really need to reorient agriculture policies, uh, trade policies to uh, be more uh, nutritious and aligned to what we want to see on people's plates. So, and that's a hard thing to do, especially in places like the United States with the farm bill. It's very difficult. Um, And also increasingly difficult going back to the question of climate change, because where today might be good geographic locations for growing Mm -hmm. a particular kind of more nutritious food may not be a place 10 years from now that is suitable for those crops, right? Yeah, exactly. So giving farmers, you know, the tools and the trade to be able to, in places where they can grow horticulture, like fruits and vegetables, giving them the tools to be able to adapt to climate change. We have a lot of evidence and we've had 40 years of warning about climate. It's incredible the amount of evidence that's accumulated on climate and we're just now waking up. But there's been a a huge accumulation of evidence and solutions of how farmers can adapt to climate change. But they need assistance from governments. They need assistance from private sector to be able to make those uh, adaptations. But now's the time to do that. In 10 years, it's going to get a little bit too late, as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report just talked about in, in their recent publication. So you talk, you you made reference to the farm bill, and there's mm-hmm. you know an entire literature in policy studies and political science about the Department of Agriculture and its own particular mm-hmm. kind of of functioning over over the decades. Do you, I mean, just, you know, as you talk about sort of national level changes, do you have any insight into practical ways to disrupt those existing power arrangements that that entrench those powers that are not in our collective interest? 
Yeah, I think there's starting to be some examples of where you see the kind of David winning over the Goliath. I mean, a great example is in Chile, where um, government and civil society have really taken on private sector. And um, they, they looked at what foods were considered unhealthy and basically put warning signs on the front of the label, these black stop signs, if they were high in sugar, salt, and fat. And they even went further, besides just warning consumers, they regulated those foods. You can't sell them in a school or near a school. You can't advertise them on TV TV during uh, hours that children watch TV. So not only did they create basically these huge warning labels on the food, but they regulated that food and limited its sales. And that has been incredibly powerful for a few reasons. One, industry reformulated their foods to try to avoid that warning sticker. So they removed the sugar, they removed the salt, they removed the unhealthy fats. And it's... we. It's shown to be quite effective in that consumers that saw that warning label, there's been about a 25% reduction in purchases of those foods. Wow. So it's, that is an incredible story. And it's, you know, Chile is kind of leading the way. And, you know, we've got other stories of Mexico putting a soda tax. They were one of the first to do it. Um, we saw purchases of soda go down. So we're seeing these inklings of countries, a lot of them coming from Latin America, <laughs> that are fighting kind of the, the, the good fight and, and winning, which is really interesting. Um, and you made reference earlier to mayors. This is a story in, in part of Michael Bloomberg's New York during his mm-hmm. tenure as mayor Absolutely. of New York. Soda taxes and um, those, those trans fats. Yeah, trans fats, yeah. menu labeling. Yeah. Uh, and seems to be, I mean, my, my re- you would know this better than I do. My read is that, the evidence still seems to be all over the place, but generally pointing to the effectiveness of those kinds of interventions here, yes? Absolutely. And even things like the Healthy Bodega Program, where people can use their SNAP benefits in some of the corner stores to purchase healthy foods at a subsidized price. So these kind of things are really, um, they're, they're great pilots, either country or city pilots. We just need governments to pay attention to them to them and scale them up on a, on a grand scale. <laughs> um, so let's, uh, as we work our way toward concluding, Jessica, why don't we talk a little bit, move away from sort of the policy area um, to talk a little bit about, about what uh, kinds of individual level changes you think can be uh, effective, again, both in terms of thinking about individual and community health uh, and in terms of, of carbon footprint and, and contributing to uh, the climate crisis. Yeah, I, w- I would say there's a, a, maybe four things a consumer could do. One is think about the kinds of foods that you waste at the household level and why you're wasting food. And there's lots of ways to change that. Um, not buying so much that you don't see the back of your refrigerator <laughs> and don't stock up food, you know, for the next 
nuclear war because it probably won't happen and have a whole storage unit of food. You probably don't need that. Sorry, um, I just love the probably. It's like, well, we don't want to rule it out given the times we live in. Exactly. <laughs> Another you know, thing to do is, is because the waste is huge, right? We're wasting about 30% of all the food that's produced in the world. Another is to eat more plant-based foods. Um, you know, maybe don't eat red meat at every meal. <laughs> you don't have to be a vegan, but it's not necessary to eat meat at every meal. You don't need it for human health reasons, and it's not great for the planet. So um, try other cuisines that are more vegetarian-based, like Indian food or Thai food, um, if, if, it's, if it's hard to just boil broccoli and and uh, that doesn't taste so appealing for some people, but there's lots of other cuisines that are very kind of vegetarian based that are delicious to try and start consuming more of those. Um, also, in, from, from kind of a community perspective, but also linking more to farming, get to know your local farmers. And you know, there's lots of, everyone's growing food in almost every part of the world and getting to know some of those farmers, particularly if they're, um, you know, they've been around for a long time and they've been producing food, get to know some of the elderly farmers, get to know the young farmers, get to know black farmers that are, have, have farms right nearby you and support them. And I think one thing we learned during COVID is this idea of, of gardens, either you know, get involved in a local garden or local food bank or a food community service. Those have been really important in COVID, not so much for improving nutrition, but more about social cohesion and almost a food justice approach of mm -hmm. kind of taking back, <laughs> taking some ownership and feeling this tangible um, kinship with other community members who are growing food. And I think that's something that's, um, you know, really important from a social cohesion point of view and, and supporting your local community. So if you, if you don't have enough room to grow your own garden, there's a lot of these community gardens to get involved in um, that can be really rewarding to just uh, be able to grow some tomatoes over the summer, you know, grow some, some squash in the fall. There's something very rewarding about doing that and, and giving back to your community. And jumping off from there, Jessica, you also suggest that, that people look for opportunities to, to, to band together, to mobilize, and then to advocate for change at the, the local and national level. Can you talk a little bit about what that might look like for people? What are the things that they might do to, to, to jump into that arena? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on right now around food banks, uh, food support services um, locally. And, and I, we've really seen that with COVID. So supporting um, whether you belong to a church or you belong to um, certain community groups, supporting some of those food-related initiatives is, is really important right now because we're going to continue to see a lot of food insecurity over the next 24 months, particularly if this Delta variant kind of rolls on. And uh, 
you know, people are still uh, not able to fully go back to work in the capacity that they were before early 2020. So um, there's lots of ways to get involved in these community service. A lot of it does center around food, <laughs> either cooking food or distributing food or uh, growing food, but um, lots of ways to get involved um, in, in your community and, and particularly for if you can get young children involved early on in, in life and they get a taste of what it's like to grow food, it, it can be completely transformative for them throughout their life. You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Jessica Fonzo, who's been talking about her new book, Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet? And I'm going to go ahead and put words in her mouth and say the preliminary answer is yes, it can. <laughs> uh, um, Jessica, so. thank you. Right? Uh, and then if you pick up the book and read through it, you can find out how the ways in which you can contribute to that enormously important and very complicated process. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. 